Heavenly Father, we thank You for the Word of God. And we thank You for God the Word. A real Savior coming and living and dying and rising from the dead. Lord, we pray that You would open up our eyes and that You would open up our hearts and that You would open up our minds and we could see the truth contained in the Scripture. Lord, we pray that for those who are are experiencing doubt or disappointment, for the person, Lord, who's even struggling with unbelief, Lord, we pray that You would make Your case. Lord, we know that no one comes to you unless they're drawn by the Holy Spirit of God. So, Father, I pray that you would speak in the recesses of hearts. Lord, I pray that you would whisper the exact words that need to be spoken to that man, to that woman who has come here today, not to hear from me, but to hear from you. And so, Lord, speak to them. Cleanse them. Purify them. Occupy them sanctify them. In Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 5, beginning in verse 31, it says, If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp. And you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. But I have a greater witness than John's for the works which the Father has given me to finish. The very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And the Father himself who sent me, has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you. Because whom he sent, him you do not believe. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. I got a new computer, as you knew from last week. And with my new computer, I am now seeing the unvarnished world of YouTube. I had no idea that there was so much stuff out there from so many different people. I read an interesting article on the web entitled, Snared in the web of a Wikipedia liar. It was written by Catherine Seeley, and she wrote, quote, According to Wikipedia, the online encyclopedia, John Siegenthaler Sr. is 78 years old and the former editor of the Tennessean in Nashville. But is this information or anything else in Mr. Siegenthaler's biography true? The question arises because Mr. Siegenthaler recently read about himself on Wikipedia and was shocked to learn that he was, quote, thought to have been directly involved in the Kennedy assassinations of both John and Brother Bobby, unquote. Quote, nothing was ever proven, the biography added. 
The event prompted a debate online over the value and reliability of Wikipedia and more broadly over the nature of online information. Those of you who are unfamiliar with it, anyone can post anything at almost any site and it can say whatever they want it to say. And the only thing that can draw is the vast numbers of people across the world who can bring to the table true information. The Bible has been the center of a massive debate concerning the identity and the mission and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And some people have the absurd notion that it was written by a group of people willing to write whatever they want with their own agenda, not necessarily committed to the truth. So here's the question. Can we believe what the Bible says about Jesus? If Jesus had the ability to read the four Gospels, would he find the information to be factual and credible and reasonable and consistent with his true identity, his true mission, his true message? John chapter 5 has unfolded in a series of scenes. First, the miracle of a man who was palsied for 38 years. He's suddenly healed, and that on the Sabbath. Second, there's a series of claims where Jesus declares that he is equal with God. Now Jesus will present a series of witnesses to substantiate those claims in light of the accusations of being a Sabbath breaker and a blasphemer. That is, he's making unfair, unfounded and untrue claims about himself. And so Jesus makes three significant claims. Number one, he claims equality with God in verses 19 through 23. He claims to have authority over the dead in verses 24 through 29. And now he claims that there are valid witnesses who will support his testimony concerning his identity and mission and deity. As you can imagine, there are a lot of important words in the Gospel of John. Words like truth, words like salvation, and another important word is the word witness. It's used some 47 times in John's Gospel. The word witness is the Greek word martyreo. It is translated to testify, to witness. It's also translated testimony. The witness gives testimony to actual events, evidence, based on his or her understanding, their direct personal knowledge. In the New Testament, when the disciples met to choose a replacement for Judas Iscariot, who killed himself, they said, quote, in Acts chapter 1, verse 21, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness, same word, with us of his resurrection, unquote. In both the Greek and the Hebrew culture, one's personal experience of objective reality served as a basis for witness or testimony making an important statement about the Christian faith. Our faith is based on historic events. The resurrection of Jesus was not some subjective experience, but an objective event that took place in the real world. 
Remember what we've also talked about. The reality of what it means to be a witness and the three characteristics that a witness has to have. First, a witness has to have a knowledge of the facts. Number two, a witness must be prepared and willing to tell the truth. And number three, remember, a witness has to have a reputation for telling the truth. And so, Jesus tells the truth. Look at verse 31, the personal witness. He begins in verse 31, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. Now, Jesus is not suggesting that his claim is false. He is simply reminding everyone of what was written in the law. And that is that the unsupported testimony wouldn't be valid in a Jewish court of law. According to the rabbinic sayings in Jewish procedures, none may be believed when he testifies of himself. According to Jewish law, a single witness was insufficient to determine the truthfulness or the falseness of any given statement, accusation, claim. As a matter of fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, remember Moses writes and he says, quote, One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. And so justice demanded multiple witnesses. Why? Okay, I'm going to ask you your first hard question of the morning. Has it been your experience that sometimes people lie? See, you're laughing because you're going, well, yes, that, that has definitely been an experience. Is it possible that human beings are sometimes selfish and self-centered? We sometimes love ourselves more than we love the truth. And because we love ourselves more than we love the truth, even the fabric of society is stretched Sometimes its laws are threatened. It's been my privilege to be a a police chaplain for most of my adult life, working with local law enforcement officials. And you only have to spend one day with a law enforcement official out on the street. And it doesn't take long to learn that people lie. And they lie about a lot of different things. Imagine you're on a jury. Imagine the court has been called to order. Imagine that you're going to hear testimony concerning the facts of the identity and the mission and the person of Jesus Christ. And he says, yet another witness in verse 32. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. Now notice how Jesus introduces his next witness. There is another. There are two words in the Greek language that are typically translated another. One means another of the same but different. The other word means another of exactly the same kind or having the same nature and the same substance. And the two words are alos and heteros. Now, heteros is going to be a word that many of you are going to be familiar with because we use 
terms like heterosexual and homosexual. Heteros means that you are someone who's attracted to someone of the same species, but of a different gender. Now, if you're attracted to a different species, see me after the service. Heteros is not the word that's used in the text. The word here is alos. And that word means someone different, but the same in nature and substance. Now, this is interesting because it's a subtle reference both to the deity of Jesus and to the personhood both of the Spirit of God and the Son of God. The Holy Spirit had been given, remember, without measure to Jesus in John chapter 3, verse 34. There are three that bear witness in heaven. Remember in 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 12, the Father, the Word, and the Spirit, and these three are one. Jesus seems to be speaking of the witness within. This is the witness of the presence of the Holy Spirit when he uses the expression, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. In the original language, it's in what's known as the continual action. The idea is that the Holy Spirit is constantly and continually bearing witness to the ministry of Jesus. Jesus sensed the truth of the witness within his own heart and life. The Holy Spirit bore witness with the spirit of Jesus that he was the son of God. And later, Jesus will describe the ministry of the Holy Spirit as convicting the unsaved person of sin and of righteousness and of judgment in John chapter 16, verses 7 through 11. Part of the point of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is he shows up and he goes inside of a person's heart and he begins to knock. And as he knocks on the door over and over again, the Holy Spirit bears witness and says, what that person is saying is true. What that person is saying is true. What that person is saying is true. And the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Truth in John 16, 13. The Spirit of Wisdom and Revelation in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17. The Holy Spirit draws people to Jesus. The Holy Spirit points people to Jesus. He is equal with the Father and with the Son, according to Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. The Holy Spirit has a mind in Romans chapter 8, verse 27. He searches the human mind in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10. The Holy Spirit has a will, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11. The Holy Spirit forbids. The Holy Spirit leads. The Holy Spirit speaks. The Holy Spirit loves. The Holy Spirit grieves. The Holy Spirit prays. The Father is constantly, continually testifying to the claims of Christ. Before Jesus was born, God prophesied His coming. When Jesus was born, God sent angels to announce His arrival. God sent a star. God moved wise men from the east. And at the baptism of Jesus, the Father testified from heaven in Matthew 3, verse 17, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. In Matthew 17, verse, verse 5, it says, while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. He was talking about the transfiguration. 
the continual testimony of the Spirit of God, the continual testimony of the Father. Now, someone might be thinking, objection, Your Honor. Witness is invisible. That's right. The witness is invisible. But no self-respecting Jew would call into question the reality that there is a God. You might, though. How do you know there's a God? Let's do the math for just a second. Why is there something rather than nothing? Why is that something? How is it possible that inorganic material becomes organic? Why is there consciousness rather than non-consciousness? How are we able to communicate with each other? Okay, while you're working on it, here's what the Bible says. Only the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. But look what he does in the next sentence, in verse 33. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. That's the next person that Jesus calls to the witness stand. Hey, you guys earlier had a conversation with John the Baptist. And remember, the testimony of John the Baptist was simple and direct. And remember what I've already told you. In order to be a credible witness, you have to know the truth, you have to be willing to tell the truth, and you have a reputation for honesty. Does John the Baptist fit the bill? Does he know the truth? Well, John 1.15, John 1.23, John 1.29 and 30, John calls Jesus the Lord. John tells the people that he's the Lamb of God, and then he tells them that he is the Son of God. The words where it says, you have sent to John, and he has borne witness, is a single word in the original language. It's the Greek word mem, marturikin. It's a compound word. It means an ongoing and a permanent witness. The idea is that his ongoing unrelenting, unabashed, consistent testimony has been that Jesus is the Lord, Jesus is the Lamb, Jesus is the Son of God. He's not some fly-by-night guy who just shows up and gives testimony and goes, yeah, Jesus is Lord, (laughs) hallelujah, one way, and then he just sort of disappears. As a matter of fact, He has such a reputation for honesty that he winds up telling Herod the truth about his illicit and immoral relationship with his brother's wife. She inappropriately divorces the brother, marries Herod, and he's intoxicated with this love sickness. And she has a daughter named Salome. And one day for Herod's birthday, she decides to dance. And boy, does she dance. And as she danced in a drunken birthday stupor, Herod offers her whatever she wants up to half of his kingdom. And do you remember what she asked for? His head on a platter. There's an interesting statement that's given in the Bible. It says that Herod was very, very sorry that he made the deal. But he wasn't so sorry that he was willing to change his mind. And he had, Her- he had John the Baptist executed. And he brought his head on a platter. And the disciples came and they buried the body of John the Baptist. 
you'll note what he, he says in verse 34. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. It is Jesus' way of saying the authority and the testimony of the Father and the authority and the testimony of the Spirit and the authority and the testimony of myself should be sufficient. But guess what? I'm bringing this additional testimony so that you will be saved. Here is the thing that is really, really important. He says in verse 35, He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in His light. John the Baptist is called the burning and the shining lamp. The, the, the word lamp is lichnos. It, it literally means a, a piece of clay that's shaped in, in, into a bowl, and they would put a spout on it, and then they would fill it with olive oil, and they would take some linen. Or they would take some cloth and they would use it as a wick and they were willing to light it. The idea being that the Jewish people were excited about John's ministry. But the flame began to cool when John was arrested and no one lifted a finger to help him. But prior to that, you know what? He was a rock star. Of course, it wasn't rock and roll. It was the rock of ages. Tens of thousands Literally, tens and tens of thousands of people would walk out into the wilderness and they would listen to John the Baptist preach. Well, what does it mean? And you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. Could it mean that for a while some listened and some were excited and some believed and some repented of their sins? Some prepared their hearts for the coming of Messiah. One Bible writer doesn't take it to mean that at all. Leon Morris, who's one of the great Bible commentators, said, quote, It may be that, that there is an idea of light-hearted merrymaking where there should have been serious purpose. The Jews never did take John seriously. They never came to grips with his message. John was steady, unflickeringly, pointing the way in his stern call to seriousness of purpose. And these Jews who professed to be the people of God and to be seeking the way of God just as steadily ignored his essential message. Instead, they took him to be a part of the ecclesiastical furniture, so to speak. They exalted in God's gift of a prophet to their generation, unquote. Here's the idea. The religious leaders were thrilled and honored to have a prophet in their midst. From the time of Malachi till the time of John the Baptist, there were 300 years of silence. 300 years people were waiting to hear from God. God, we're waiting. We want to hear from you. God, we want to hear what you have to say. We're listening. We're listening. And John the Baptist shows up on the scene. They were honored to have a prophet. But they gave themselves permission to disregard his message. Let me put it to you another way. If John said anything that did not allow them to do exactly what they wanted to do, what they desired, then they would reject his word and they would reject his testimony. Isn't that interesting? Another Bible writer, Warren Wiersbe, writes, quote, 
Whenever God raises up a spiritual leader who commands attention, there's always the danger of attracting people who want to bask in his popularity but not submit to his authority. A mixed multitude followed Moses and Israel out of Egypt. People who were impressed with miracles but not yielded to the Lord. The prophets and the apostles as well as the great leaders in church history all had to put up with shallow people who followed the crowd but refused to obey the truth. We have them in churches today. You see, it's one thing to say, hey, look. Look at what this person is saying. Until they ask you to do something that you don't want to do. And look at the witness of wonderful works in verse 36. Jesus continues, but he says, but I have, but I have a greater witness than John's. Now, how can you have a greater witness than John's? Among human beings, there's no one greater than John. He says, for the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. Have you ever watched like Law and Order or Criminal Intent or crime drama or any kind of court scene or been involved in court processes? Sometimes when people call witnesses to the stand, they give their testimony and then the district attorney or the prosecuting attorney or the defense attorney will move from verbal aids to visual aids. They, they bring out... The, the, the pie charts. They bring out the crime scene photos. They, you look at the gory details, the, the, the images that are brought to bear. That's exactly what Jesus is doing. He's moving from the verbal to the visual. And the signs are the signs that have already taken place and will continue to take place in John's Gospel. The first sign, remember, Jesus turned water into wine in Cana. The second sign, the healing of the nobleman's son. The third sign, the healing of the palsied man. Another sign, he'll feed 5,000. The fifth sign, it will be a storm on a lake and Jesus will walk on the water. Yes, Jesus walked on the water, it's true. Most of the time, he took a boat. That's why walking on the water became such a powerful image. And the sixth sign, he'll heal a blind man. The seventh sign, he will raise, in John chapter 11, his friend Lazarus from the dead. That's pretty impressive. But here's the reality. These are just simple types and pictures and images. They are literally just the top of the iceberg. And just like a trial where an attorney breaks out the PowerPoint and he begins this series of images and powerful deeds and irrefutable evidence for, for Christ's power and divinity. And Jesus will walk. And Jesus will go to a cross. And Jesus will rise from the dead. Remember, at some point, the religious leaders say, show us a sign. And he says, I'm not going to, he goes, a wicked and an adulterous and evil generation seeks after a sign. He's got, he says, but I've got one more sign left for you. Just like Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sweet creature, so the son of man will be in the bowels of the earth. Jesus will come back to life. Now, I've got to tell you something. 
That says a lot. But yet the defense still doesn't rest. Jesus will call yet another witness. He appeals to the miracles as signs and proofs of his message. And that becomes the point. The miracles weren't just simply the miracles to show off, but it was to substantiate and reinforce the reality of who he is. The miracles of Jesus prove the message of Jesus. And look at verse 37. The witness of the watching God. And it says, And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. What? Well, who did Adam listen to in the Garden of Eden? Who did Elijah walk with at the beginning of Genesis? Who was it that Noah spoke to before the rain came? Who was it that called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees? Who was it that told him and took him and and kept him from, from sacrificing his own son in Genesis chapter 22? Who was it that gave the promise to Isaac? Who was it that wrestled with Jacob? Who was it that interpreted the dreams for Joseph? Who was it that spoke to Moses from the burning bush? Jesus. Look what it says in verse 38. But you, but, but you do not, you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent, him you do not believe. Do you know what Jesus is saying? You don't have the Father, so you can't have the Son. John will, will later repeat this in 1 John when he says, He who has the Son has the Father, but he who does not have the Son does not have the Father. Jesus rebukes the religious leaders for their failing to hear and their failing to accept the ongoing testimony of the God of heaven. And Jesus reminds them that they don't really have the Word of God living inside of them. And how does Jesus know this? Because God's word and God's son was not the object of their faith. So when the person who says to you, you know, I don't believe the Bible and I don't believe Jesus and I don't believe you. But you know what? I'm a a very spiritual person. You You see, I have my own spiritual beliefs. I have my own religion. Well, good for you. But remember what your religion is. It's the product of your imagination. It's not the revelation of the real God who has pointed people to the Lord Jesus. The Old Testament, like a megaphone, shouted the coming of the Messiah, the mission of the Messiah, the suffering servant. The the Old Testament said, He will be born of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah. He will be the son of David. He will be born in Bethlehem. He will be born of a virgin. He will open blind eyes and deaf ears. You should have known this. You should have seen this coming. But the religious leaders turned a deaf ear 
In Luke 13, 34, Jesus said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I would wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you weren't willing. What does God, what does God have to do before you will be willing to accept the evidence that Jesus Christ is Lord. And look what Jesus says in verse 39. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. The, the, the expression is a command. You search the scriptures. The verb search, by the way, means to search with minute, intense investigation. The word search means that, we might even translate it this way, you search the scriptures down to the last detail, to the last jot, to the last tittle. What you've got to understand something is for the Jewish people, they, they paid such close attention to the Word of God, there is in the Hebrew language um, an alphabet equivalent. Just like we have 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. They didn't have a numeric system. And so the beginning of the Hebrew alphabet served as the first ten letters of their numeric system. And they would translate the words into a numeric code. And then they would code the scripture. And when a Jew, when a scribe was was copying the book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, when they wrote the name of God, in the beginning was, in the beginning, God. They would stop what they were doing. They would wash themselves. And then they would come back to the text and go back to the beginning. Now, because they did that, that gives us an excellent transmission of the Bible. Your Bible is the most accurately transmitted document in all of human history. Jesus rebukes them because they search the Scripture down to the last minute, intense detail. But how can they not see Jesus in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy? How can they not see that He's the, the, the promised land that you occupy in the book of Joshua? How could they miss it? Jesus is addressing the religious leaders who rejected his testimony. And the religious leaders held the word of God in such high regard. They had a superstitious reverence, so much so that they wouldn't even pronounce the name of God. But when they came to the tetragrammaton, the I am that I am, they would simply wash themselves again. And amongst themselves, they would just simply say Hashem, the name. Rabbi Hillel wrote, quote, more flesh, more worms. More wealth, more care. More maidservants, more lewdness. More men servants, more thieving. More women, more witchcraft. More Torah, more life. Whoso hath gained a good name has gained it for himself. Whoso hath gained the words of the Torah hath gained for himself life in the world to come. It isn't just simply the Bible. 
It isn't simply the chapters, and it isn't simply the pages. It isn't simply the Hebrew and the Greek and the Aramaic. This is a message about Jesus, and don't get me wrong, this is one of those situations where I have an unhealthy preoccupation with everything having to do with the Bible. I love the table of contents. I love the concordance. I love the maps, and I love the way it smells. I love everything about it. How is it possible that the Old Testament Scriptures reveal the Messiah? How is it possible that the people who received and preserved the Word of God were blind to their own Messiah? The answer is in verse 38 and 39. They didn't permit the Word of God to generate faith in their hearts. The scribes wanted to know the Word of God, but they didn't want to know the God of the Word. The ancient scribes counted the very letters of each word, but they missed the truth of the text. And there was also a problem with their minds. The Jewish leaders didn't see Jesus in their own scriptures. But there was also something wrong with their will. They wouldn't trust him. Warren Wearsby writes, Because they did not have the Word in their hearts, they didn't want Christ in their hearts. They were religious and self-righteous, but they were not saved. You can know everything in the Bible. You can know every chapter in the Bible. You can know, know every message in the Bible. And somehow neglect Jesus. F.R. Beatty writes, Christianity is either everything for mankind or nothing. It's either the highest certainty or it's the greatest delusion. But if Christianity be everything for mankind, it is important for every man to be able to give a good reason for the hope that's within him in regard to the eternal truths of the Christian faith. To accept these truths in an unthinking way or to receive them simply on authority isn't enough for an intelligent and stable faith. I agree with them, but I also disagree with them. Let me tell you how I disagree. Jesus is given the authority of the Father. The authority of the Son. The authority of the Spirit. The authority of the works of the Son. The authority of the miracles of the Son. The authority of the testimony of the greatest prophet of his time. I'm going to sneak ahead just one little bit for next week. Verse 40 but you're not willing to come to me that you might have life. I can almost guarantee you that there were tears in his eyes and his heart was broken. How can you do this? How can you reject the authority of Jesus, reject the authority of the Spirit of God, reject the authority of the Father, reject the authority of the Baptist, reject the authority of the miracles, reject the, the authority of the Word of God, rejecting the testimony, rejecting the authority. That's irrational. That's subjective. That's going to result in an unstable faith. 
Now think about this for just a moment. I believe in God, but I don't believe in the Bible and I don't believe in Jesus. But what do you believe in? Whatever I want to. And you're okay with that? It's so stinking easy to be religious. It's easy for a lawyer to navigate through the legal maze and to be focused on the rules and to be focused on the law, but never have a heart for justice. It's easy for a teacher to become familiar with his or her area of expertise, but fail to see the importance of their own character or the impressionable lives that God has entrusted to them. It's easy to be a doctor familiar with the state of the art medical procedures and forget that your patient is a human being made in the image of God, loved for by God, cared for by God. It's easy for professional clergy to be a serious student of the Scripture, to love the content of the book, to be thrilled with the Greek and the Hebrew, able to exegete the text with a drop of a hat, willing to have a love affair with the printed page and the electronic data on their Bible program, able to calculate and correlate all the passages into self-help categories, but unwilling to have a love relationship with the Savior And then encourage others to have it. The Bible, the Bible isn't a self-help book or simply a legal document. It's a love letter from a lovely Lord. It was meant to draw you to the glory and the majesty of His being. It was meant so that you would hear His invitation. It was meant so that you would experience wholeness and wellness. It was meant so that you could experience forgiveness. It was meant so that you could experience comfort. It was meant so that you could experience hope. It was meant so that you could be reconciled to the Father. If your Bible study makes you angry or arrogant or militant, then you have to ask yourself an important question that you may be struggling with the same thing that the religious leaders were struggling with. If the Bible doesn't draw us to Jesus, almost certainly we don't have the Word of God abiding in our hearts. That's the point that Jesus is making. If you had me, you would have the Father. If you had the Father, you would have me. The mark of true Bible study isn't simply knowledge that puffs up, but love that builds up. And Jesus has carefully prepared his witness list. Each has taken the stand. Jesus has taken the stand. The Father has testified. The Spirit has testified. His miracles have testified. John the Baptist has testified. And now you have to make the sobering decision. And the verdict that you reach will literally become an issue of life or death. But do you know what the irony is? It isn't the life and death of the Savior. He's already died for your sins. It isn't the identity and the mission of Jesus and His resurrection from the dead. You can't make Jesus go away. The irony is the thing that's on the line is your life your heart 
your future. The future at stake is your future. The heart that's at stake is your heart. Next week we're going to learn a little bit of how Jesus deals with rejection. But this week, I want you to focus on something very, very different. I want you to focus on the testimony that's been given concerning his identity. He is the Lord. Concerning his mission, he will go to the cross and die for your sins. Concerning what's going to happen in the future, he's going to come back. He's going to raise everybody from the dead. And all of eternity rests in Jesus' hands. Wow. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, you've given us the testimony. Lord, the Father has repeatedly insisted that the Son is the Lord. The Holy Spirit repeatedly points us to Jesus. John the Baptist testified concerning his identity. The scriptures faithfully and consistently and repetitively point to to who he is. Lord, it's my understanding that in order to reject Jesus, you have to reject every testimony that's been given concerning who he is. Lord, I pray that that wouldn't be the case here this morning. Lord, I pray that each heart would fully and finally and forever trust Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.